she was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm Sarah Gorski and I'm here uh, once again with my friend Adrian Snow. Hi, Adrian. Hi. Adrian, I have a question for you and for our audience. Okay. If you had to choose one favorite broad today, who would it be? Or like who, what broad's on your mind these days? I'll say, you know, actually Britt Lauer on Severance. Oh my God, that show. Yeah. Holy Yes. She's amazing. She's amazing. Who is she? I, I hadn't seen her in anything else. So she was on Future Man. I've seen her around. And I was not, I'm not going to lie, I was not crazy about her on Future Man. But that's kind of because the way they write women on that show isn't great anyway. Like Seth Rogen isn't really good at writing women. Oh. No offense. I mean, <laughs> but full offense. <laughs> and so <laughs> what's he going to do? Nothing. He doesn't listen to Bob. You should know. <laughs> right. She's she was really impressive and I just like her physicality between her Innie and Audi when you when you get to experience them like she said that she was inspired by uh, Patty 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 the Smith, rock singer from the, the rock singer Smith, yeah. from the 70s yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> she like and you can see it like when she like in the very last episode she walks out as her Innie and you can see like she has like this punk rock walk to her and I was like Oh, yeah. I definitely don't want to spoil the finale for listeners who haven't heard it yet. But that show, if you're not watching Severance yet, watch it. And the finale is going to blow your mind. Yeah. I did an improv set where I did a Severance reference and everyone freaked out on me. They were like, do not spoil it. I was like, you guys, (laughs) I'm not going to spoil Severance. (laughs) In the middle of an improv set. The finale comes out in an hour. We're not even, none of us can even watch it yet. (laughs) Needless to say, I was very surprised. It was, it was what I thought it was. It was closer to what I thought it was. It wasn't exactly that, (sighs) but I thought it was in that vein. I suspected, but I didn't suspect like the level. Anyway, anyway, this isn't a show about severance. (laughs) I am here to share an amazing broad with you. In fact, a civil rights broad. You know, there's so fucking many of them, and -hmm. I had never heard of almost any of them, like in my school history and all that shit. And every time I hear of another one that I haven't heard of, I'm like, what the fuck? And there were so many amazing women. I feel like everyone, we just learned about like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and like we didn't hear about anybody else. And there's all these amazing women who were such a huge part of the movement. And so I'm bringing one today. I am bringing you Constance Baker Motley. Have you heard of her? Probably a long time ago. <laughs> but back in, you know, Black History Month, one one month, one year, probably she popped up. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll tell you how I heard of her is that she is one of the role models of Katanji Brown Jackson, who just got approved by the House and the Senate is going to be our next Supreme Court justice. And she lists Constant Baker Motley as one of her biggest role models. And I was like, who's Constant Baker Motley? And I look her up and I was like, holy fucking shit. (laughs) Holy shit. And apparently she's everybody's role model. She's Kamala Harris's role model. She's, because her history in the judiciary, she's like, well, the most prominent black woman basically that ever, she she kind of achieved like the highest levels first. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to dial it back to 1921. Mm-hmm. When she was born, she was mm-hmm. born the ninth of 12 children, 12. Yeah. 
still surprises me whenever I hear numbers like that. Oh, really? Uh, and her, yeah, I, I just imagine 12, that's being pregnant for like 15 years straight. Yeah, my like, that's both crazy. of my parents are one of 10. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And now we're like, can we afford even one? I don't know. I know. <laughs> I would um, never yeah. be willing to, to do that to my body 10 times. I'm, I'm barely considering one time. <laughs> <laughs> well, her mother um, was Rachel Rachel Huggins, and her father was McCullough Alva Baker, mm. and they were emigrants from the island of Nevis in the West Indies slash Caribbean. And her mother was a community activist, and she founded the New Haven NAACP. And then Constance attended New Haven's integrated public schools, and she loved reading. Uh, and she was especially inspired by books about civil rights heroes. And by the age of 15, she had decided to become a lawyer. Mm-hmm. One thing that um, factors into, I think, how, how things go for her later is that um, one of the articles I was researching talked about how because her parents were immigrants from the Caribbean, immigrants were different than Black people who had been enslaved in the U.S., Yes. They had like a different social status. To this day, that's a thing. That That's still a thing. There is a, I don't know if I would call it tension. It's, it's definitely not as as, as uh, tense as it used to be. But I, like I am black and I am a descendant of slaves. But if you are from a country in Africa and you're first gen American over here from your parents or you're first gen from a Caribbean, yeah. one of the islands, then there is kind of a... A, like a a poo-pooing on on the descendants of slaves. Yeah, that's what the article basically said is like that her dad looked down on the enslaved, formerly enslaved descendants of the enslaved. He mm-hmm. like kind of like looked down on them and always thought of them as kind of better than them. And also in New Haven, there wasn't they they were not uh, segregated, so they were integrated. And she grew up in an integrated community, mm-hmm. and they didn't experience in New Haven nearly the level of of racism and like overt violence that was felt in the South. She grew up not in that. And then what she ends, the work she ends up doing, she faces that. And I think being raised uh, not to feel inferior was a huge part of kind of the confidence she carried with her. It definitely certainly helps. My parents were definitely sheltered me and put me in a bubble. Uh, I didn't face any type of, I don't know. I, I mean, I certainly faced racism. Maybe I wasn't fully aware of it. You know, in the way that I realized it as I got older, but there is no boundaries to what I could think I was possible of because I wasn't, you know, being told I could, I couldn't do something day in and day out. So, yeah. And rather than I shouldn't, I think I misspoke earlier when I said like he looked down on, I don't think his family necessarily looked down on the other folks, but they didn't have an inferiority complex that came with constant mistreatment and segregation yeah like I think that's a better way to put it so no no I think it's actually both where it there is like um when you get to grow up in a place where you are considered the majority that's going to be reflected in how you move about the world right so if you are black and you you are of African origin like OG no no in between <laughs> issues, um, or you're a Caribbean and like you're the majority there, and you come over here, then that's going to affect like how you present yourself. Versus if you've kind of been like bracing yourself most of your life, that's also going to uh, as a minority, that's going to affect how you how you go through the world, and also how other minorities who exist in the same grouping as you 
you know, skin wise, even if we're not culturally the same, are going to 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 see you as well. The thing about racism is it affects everyone. It affects us interculturally as well as like and interracially as well as it out outside of each other's races, right? So yeah, it's it's both where it's like yeah they faced a different type of oppression or they're further removed from their own oppression that they it doesn't affect them in the same way. It, it is like a indoctrination to think of Black Americans as kind of like the lowest. <laughs> of the yeah. black people like well, that's a part yeah, of yeah that was really interesting i hadn't i hadn't done much thinking on that so that was an mm-hmm. interesting it was interesting to to read that so anyway back to mm-hmm. back to constance mm-hmm. um her family income was pretty humble her dad used to it's they said he used to be like a i think it was a cobbler on the islands but he couldn't that work was all done by italians in new mm-hmm. england mm-hmm. um so he pivoted and he ended up working at like a lot of restaurants and stuff like that but they were pretty humble they didn't have a lot of money and she couldn't afford to go to college right after she graduated high school. So she got a job as a maid for a little bit. And then eventually she found a job with the National Youth Administration. And one day she was giving a speech at a local community center. And this guy, Clarence Blakesley, was in the audience. He was a, a, apparently a wealthy white contractor. And he was so impressed with her that he talked to her afterwards and he offered to pay for her to attend college. Mm. I didn't read much more about that specific, like how that came to be, but fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. So she, uh, in 1941, she goes to Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. Hmm. In 1941? Yeah. I was just surprised because I know like a lot of universities wouldn't even let black men into, <laughs> yeah. into university, well, here's especially what in was Tennessee. So a side fact is that she's going to school during World War II. Uh-huh. And a bunch of the young men that would have been filling all these spots in, in universities are out at the front, right? Mm-hmm. So I think um, one of the articles I at least found talked about how there was a little bit more like wiggle room and opportunity to kind of get in positions that you might not have been able to get in if the boys weren't away at war. Yeah, quote, that's quote, true. The boys weren't away at war. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she is at Fisk for two years. She ends up transferring to New York University in 1943. And then she graduates with a bachelor's in economics. And then in 44, she applies and is accepted to Columbia Law School. And she becomes the first black woman to be accepted and attend. And she graduates and she gets her law degree in 1946. So she starts applying for jobs, but the law firms basically wouldn't even consider her. Yeah. Um, There was one article that talked about how she went to an interview at a a big New York City law firm and the door was like shut in her face because the partners were like, we do not want to hire a woman. We don't want to hire a black woman. Mm -hmm. She was just kind of like immediately turned away and she had a lot of trouble. And then... I think it was possibly through her connections at Columbia. I wasn't clear because the every article kind of said he she met him in a different way. But she meets Thurgood Marshall. And he, at that time, he was the chief counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, hmm. the, L, the LDF, I'm going to call it the rest of the podcast. Like They're the ones who brought all of these super famous lawsuits that really push civil rights through, through throughout these next couple decades we're about to talk about here. Mm-hmm. And I think still today. So she meets Thurgood Marshall, and he was very friendly to her. Audience, if you don't know who Thurgood Marshall is, he's also a black man. So I think there was like a camaraderie in, well, in if, that. If you don't with. know who Thurgood Marshall is, what in the actual hell? 
<laughs> she is a figure that I was familiar with, even though all these women I've not heard of before. Right? Yeah, he's the first black man on the Supreme Court. And so it's like, yeah. people are like, I don't know who that is. And I feel like, what? I would assume you're just not from the United States, which is understandable. But if you are in the United States. You don't know history. A lot of people don't know history. I, I mean, I will say that as someone who constantly finds myself surprised by the things I learned because I thought I knew history. And then, oh, it turns out I only knew a certain part of history. Yeah. <laughs> but Marshall is also a movie with Black Panther. Oh, my gosh. Huh? Oh, Chadwick Boseman? Yeah, Chadwick Boseman. <laughs> I was like, no. Oh, my gosh. I knew a name you didn't know. That's a first age. No, no, no. I just blinked out. I just, no, no, no. I definitely know who Chadwick Boseman is. Please do not come for my black card. No, he <laughs> he portrayed him in one of his like one of like the movies that like before he got Black Panther, he did Marshall, which was the the history of Thurgood Marshall. I don't even know if I've seen that movie. Actually, a lot of people haven't seen the movie. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I think what's weird sometimes, just a side note, is when dark skinned actors play light skinned characters, or light skinned actors play dark skinned characters, because. That's very much a part, like the ability for Thurgood and even Constance to move through those circles during that time also mm -hmm. plays into colorism. And so they, mm -hmm. you know, were able to lean on the fact that they were light skinned black people and that allowed them to move into spaces that they normally, that black people normally wouldn't be allowed into. So that's why I didn't see Marshall because I was like, this is weird. Like Thurgood Marshall is a very light skinned black man. Yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. See, I knew you were going to blow my mind with some new thoughts and that I hadn't done. No, it's all good. So anyway, so Thurgood hi hires her on the spot, apparently, and she was delighted. And one of the people who wrote a, uh, one of the writers of, of a book about her said that it was a, a dream job for her. And she was always, through her life, incredibly grateful to him for giving her the chance. And she, and she often said that it had it not been for Thurgood Marshall, no one would ever have heard of Constance Baker Motley. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, Marshall, that was like very progressive of him to do also because people still weren't hiring women, yeah. you know, even in, in the black circles. of Yeah, know, I know. People didn't want, didn't think women were capable of it. So she is the only woman lawyer at the NAACP LDF. Mm -hmm. And I think she remains the only woman, I think her almost her entire career there. So uh, the same year she gets hired there, she marries, she gets married to Joel Wilson Motley Jr. So that's where the Motley comes from. Mm -hmm. He was a real estate broker. So she's at the LDF and she starts getting involved in these very, very high profile cases. And then they said from 1945 to 1964, she basically worked on all of the major school segregation cases hmm. that the LDF worked on. In 1954, she writes the legal brief for Brown versus Board of Education, oh, wow. which is like the integration, like that's what made segregation illegal, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the, the big daddy. It's also um, worth noting at the time she's writing, so there's a lot of prep that goes into big cases like this, mm -hmm. right? So there's all this research and you have to put these briefs together and it takes a huge amount of time. During the time she's prepping uh, Brown versus Board of Education, she gets pregnant and gives birth to her son. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's an infant and a toddler at the same time she is working on Brown versus Board of, Ed Board of Education. So she is a working mother. Yeah. Like not like she does not take time off and they work crazy long hours. It's expected lawyers during these periods of time when they're prepping cases like this, that they're away from their families for days at a time. Mm 
Um, and she she talks pretty openly that she hires people to help with childcare. She had family members, and that her husband was very supportive and a huge co-parent in all this. Yeah. And there's all these interviews. I I watched this documentary about her, and they interview her, and you know the the interviewer is a woman, and she keeps asking like, "But is your family okay? But how do you do it?" <laughs> And she's like, yes, my family is okay. And yes, it can be done. Running a family is kind of like running a business. You just have to be organized. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know. She's not, she doesn't even get flustered when someone questions her. And I think that that really speaks to kind of her supreme level of like super chill in, in the face of, of insanity. So anyway, in 1961, she works on Hamilton versus Alabama. Uh, and that was when a man, Charles Clarence, who was okay. a, a mentally disabled black man, mm -hmm. he was accused of breaking and entering and trying to, or planning to, quote, ravish a white woman. But Motley went to court and represented him, and she basically convinced the courts that they had violated his 14th Amendment rights because he was arraigned without a lawyer present. Mm. And so that particular case was a landmark in preserving defendant's right to counsel. Mm -hmm. Basically created public defenders. Basically, yeah. yeah. Oh, also, I think around that same year, I think maybe in the same year, 61, she also argued in Swain versus Alabama before the Supreme Court. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it out loud. I don't feel like I quite understand what it means, so I'm sorry in advance. Okay. But it says, in which the court refused to prescribe race-based preemptory challenges in cases involving African-American defendants. Here, I looked it up so I'm not such an idiot. Uh, so in this case, so someone was on trial for rape, mm -hmm. and it was about jury selection. Mm -hmm. And it was about, and people were nixed from jury selection because of their race. Mm. So, so two were exempt and six were preemptorily stuck, struck by the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. They didn't want black people on the jury. Yeah. Because then black people would be like factoring that into their judgment as well. So this is like the right to a jury by your peers, I think, is what this ha is related to. Maybe not directly, but I think certainly. Anyway, so that was uh, Swain versus Alabama. Eventually it was overruled. There's also, you know, some of these cases go back and forth for years. But mm -hmm. in 1962, she argues Meredith versus Fair. And that was uh, James Meredith when he was trying to attend the University of Mississippi and the university was trying to kick him out. So that was a seg an another segregation case. Nice. Uh, which was huge. And James Meredith is another really big name in this, the fight for civil rights. In 62, she argues Turner versus the city of Memphis. Um, so that resulted in the desegregating of a restaurant in the airport terminal. Uh, she also, uh, in 63, she wins the Supreme Court case Watson versus city of Memphis. And that required the immediate desegregation of all recreational facilities in Memphis. Hmm. And originally Memphis had said, oh, we'll do it, but we'll do it over a 12-year period. Mm -hmm. And that case was like, um, no, you got to do it faster than that. <laughs> uh, in 63, she also, in 1963, Gober, I think it is, versus the city of Birmingham, mm -hmm. that um, was defending 10 black students who had been in a sit-in in a dime store lunch counter. Mm -hmm. um, so she argued that in front of the Supreme Court. She also argued Shuttlesworth versus Birmingham, um, and that was the arrest and conviction of Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and Reverend Charles Billups mm. because they had encouraged students to, to participate in civil disobedience, and so mm. they were brought to court. Their convictions were reversed as a result. She won. Basically, she basically was the lawyer for like all of the major cases in the sit-ins and all the trials 
because every time there was protesting, white people were like, no, you're arrested. And so all these yeah. court cases happen and she was their defenders, right? Because, you know, white people, white supremacy specifically. Um, yeah, that legal defense fund, That's that was like the face of the protector of that time. Yeah. Especially because poor black people didn't have the money. <laughs> like, you know, they needed someone who would be willing to do it pro bono or, or, or on the cheap. Yeah, exactly. Let's see. She So she played a prominent role in desegregation cases of the universities of Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Oklahoma, Georgia, and Clemson College in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. She also represented plaintiffs for public housing suits. And then she also was counsel for the plaintiffs in Jackson, Mississippi, which resulted in desegregating railroad and bus terminals mm-hmm. and local buses in Jackson. So all, like all of these major cases, the L, if the LFD was there, Constance was there. Yeah. And she also was a defender of Martin Luther King Jr. when he was arrested. Um, obviously, he was arrested a few times, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I think um, in particular, the articles talked about um, the Good Friday protest on April 12th, 1963, which was, I believe that was Birmingham. The court said, you cannot protest on Good Friday, April 12th. And Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Shuttlesworth and Reverend Abernathy defied the court order and they marched anyway. And then they all got arrested. That was when he wrote Letter from Birmingham Jail, which Mm -hmm. is like one of his obviously more famous pieces of writing. Mm -hmm. He spent eight days behind bars and then he was released on bond, but then he had to actually face trial. And so Constance and three other male lawyers were his defense counsel. And they said for that particular trial, it drew like a huge crowd to the courtroom. uh, And it was packed with spectators for the quote, the woman lawyer who famously took no prisoners. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And, um, and like all the, even like the courthouse employees who were mostly white women mm-hmm. were like piled in the courtroom watching her challenge these segregationists. Yeah. And at one point, uh, one of the prosecutors points to Constance and calls her she instead of Mrs. Motley. And Constance replies, quote, if you can't address me as Mrs. Motley, don't address me at all. Oh my God. I've said that to someone <laughs> in real life. Miss Snow, though, but yes, that, that's a that's pretty much a black woman tagline. If you can't, if you don't come by my proper name, call me Miss Snow. Um, I mean, fuck yeah, and and of course this happened like constantly, not just in the case with with Martin Luther King Jr., but it happened like throughout all of these court appearances. There were judges who would like turn their backs when she was talking, mm-hmm. and all this crazy bullshit. And she, if you like, look up a video of her. She's just super chill, and she has this like kind of this like not bassy voice but it's it's got like let me see if i have still have the clip open well why do you look it up that, that was like a big part of civil rights training is how you composed yourself when racist white folks basically <laughs> were coming at you because i think that was a big yeah. thing with why rosa parks became the face of like like the uh, bus protest yeah. because that wasn't the first time that had been done it'd been done by Plenty of people. I think Claudette Coven was like one of the first uh, black women uh-huh. to do the protest. But she also wasn't as presentable as Rosa Parks was because Claudette was like a right. child uh, mom. She was like a teen mom. And so yeah. they didn't want her to be the face. And they chose Rosa because Rosa was a little bit more established in the community. She was older. Um, yeah. You know, that was interesting. I didn't include that um, in my notes, but I did read that in my research where they were talking about how for some of these cases – you know, the L- the LDF didn't, it didn't accept every case. 
And then in particular cases, sometimes they would, they had to kind of choose, you know, which of the people who had been wronged, they wanted to kind of be the the presenting name on the suit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of respectability politics, which is something that, you know, uh, to this day, black people go back and forth with. You can see it with Will Smith, Chris Rock. It's all respectability politics, people talking about it. Oh my God. But it's, it, it did start essentially there and it was originally a weapon as a used as a weapon to kind of it was kind of like almost like a guard to guard uh black people against the things that would be thrown at us and so i understand Mm. the initial creation of it um it has since spiraled out of control (laughs) but originally it was like you it is kind of like you have to be at the top of your game you have to be the very best you have to be someone who can move through those rooms easily and who can take those hits. Like if, if they're going to demean you or say something awful about you or turn their back on you or spit on you, you can't respond yeah. in a way that would allow them to say, see, we were right. <laughs> like, yeah. But so. we all know that's bullshit and hypocritical. I know. Up all the time, so. I know. Anyway, but Constance was chill. And and um, I will. I think I'll play a clip in a little bit that mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to ruin the next part of the story. But um, she did write an autobiography kind of later in her life. And one of the things she said is that she was never discouraged by her doubts concerning her background. She said, quote, I was the kind of person who would not be put down. I rejected any notion that my race or sex would bar my success in life. Or one of the interviews with someone who had worked with her said that they would get in the car to drive to the case and she would just like open her book and she would, not her book, but her paperwork. And she would just work on the, he'd pick her up and then she opens her her folio and she starts working while they're driving and she just was like all in it 100% every time she showed up. And it's it's worth noting cuz uh we're about to get into you know one of the harder parts of the story but the the south at this period of time is has so much violence. Mm-hmm. There's the KKK and the segregationists. Um this is the same time period as Medgar Evers and obviously as Martin Luther King Jr and all there's all these bombings happening and um, she was actually very good friends with Constance was very good friends with Medgar Evers, who um, I don't know, Adrian, if you listen to that episode or if you're familiar with his story, but he was one of the the big NAACP leaders, him and his wife mm-hmm. down in Mississippi. They mm-hmm. kind of founded the NAACP branch in Mississippi. Yeah. The ghost of um, Mississippi, the movie mm-hmm. that goes to Mississippi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which I saw when I was like eight. <laughs> like- Whoa. <laughs> Yeah. So they were really good friends. And they, she used to stay with Medgar Evers and his and his wife, Merle, who we've covered on this podcast. And he used to pick her up from the airport when she was in Mississippi. And the violence was so hot and heavy down in Mississippi. And she warned Medgar at some point, like, hey, I think you ought to trim your hedges because I feel like people can hide in those. Mm. And then in, in like, I think a moment that will that haunted her the rest of her life. In June of that year, Medgar was shot and killed in his driveway by someone hiding behind that hedge. Yeah. And uh, she, she was absolutely devastated. There was, there was this quote in her autobiography that said, quote, the mental anguish was so great that I did not think I would ever get out of bed again. Mm-hmm. I resolved then and there not to go to the funeral in Jackson, reasoning it was a time to give up on Mississippi. I felt I would not be safe there. I knew he ran a high risk in Mississippi, but when he was cut down, I decided the price we p- were paying to end segregation there was too high. Mm. I quit 
I never returned to Mississippi until 1983. Dang. So I glossed over all those cases pretty quickly, but it's worth noting that in the middle of all these cases that she's winning, every time she shows up, there's protesters, there's violence, mm-hmm. there's danger, and again and again. And she lives in she lives in the, the Northeast, you know? She doesn't mm-hmm. experience that at home, but she goes time and time again traveling to the South into these. And I think after Medgar was murdered is when she kind of she kind of decides to kind of shift her career a little bit yeah i mean alabama mississippi to this day are are scary places my mom's from mississippi and we drive through alabama and we only stopped in one place in alabama we knew where we were stopping every single time and we knew where we were stopping when we were going to mississippi every single time and so you know it's it sucks but a lot of people i think gave up on on mississippi especially and and you you still feel that to this day (laughs) like that it just got to be too much work. Yeah. In 1965, she officially leaves the NAACP, uh, the Legal Defense Fund. And at that point, though, she had personally argued 10 Supreme Court cases, and she won nine of them. Nice. And she assisted in almost 60 different cases that reached the high court. So in her time at the LDF, she worked a ton mm. and accomplished so much. Um, so in February 64, slightly before she officially leaves the NAACP, she is elected to the New York State Senate. Nice. And she becomes the first black woman to serve in the legislature. And uh, she gets in that position and immediately she starts campaigning for the extension of civil rights legislation, mm. specifically for um, additional low and middle income housing. And then in February of 1965... Connie, Connie, they call her Connie, or some people call her Connie, Connie, Constance. Um, So in 65, she is elected by the Manhattan members of the New York City Council to fill a vacancy in the office of the president of the borough of Manhattan. Mm. And she becomes the first woman and definitely the first black woman to serve Mm. in that office. Mm. And in November of 65, she's actually elected to to fulfill a full term and she becomes the first candidate for the Manhattan presidency to win endorsement of Republican, Democratic, and liberal parties. Dang, so she was hard. very well liked. <laughs> yeah. As, oh, as nice. borough president. Yeah. And while she was borough president, she draws up a seven point program for the re- revitalization of Harlem and East Harlem. Mm-hmm. And she was able to secure $700,000 from, um, there was this big government plan to revitalize the underprivileged areas of the city or as uh, Constant calls them the ghettos. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a great clip of her in the documentary I watched mm-hmm. where she talks about that project specifically. And it ends with her saying so, it's something like, um, there, there will never be equal rights as long as ghettos exist. Yeah. So like seeking to get those neighborhoods improved and make sure people aren't living in dangerous dumps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, well, it's not even just danger, right? It's, it's a bunch of things. It's food deserts. It's, it's access to healthcare. It's a bunch of different things that create ghettos. It's, it's abandonment basically by your government is what, what creates quote unquote ghettos. So then uh, on January 25th, 1966, she gets this call. that's like, Hey, come to the white house. The president needs to speak with you. Wait, what year? This is 66. So this is okay. Lyndon B. Johnson. Okay. She goes into his office and he's like, hey, so we're about to announce your appointment to the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. 
<laughs> and she was like, what? Because <laughs> I hadn't like told her or anything. Like nobody was expecting it. It was like a very, very close, closed oh, wow. secret, I guess, amongst the president and the people around him. Um, and he's like, oh, do you not want it today? We could push it to tomorrow. And she's like, no, no, today's okay. <laughs> There's this great clip where she talks about it and she tells the story. But um, she is the first black woman appointed to a federal judiciary, a federal judgeship. Nice. That, so, I, I know I keep saying nice, but I, it's a genuine nice. I know. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Your face is genuine. You yes. Genuine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's awesome though. Yes. And then, uh, she serves in that position, uh, until, um, 1982 when she becomes chief judge, the, the Southern district of New York, that's like the biggest, it's worth noting. That's like the biggest judgeship in the country. Yes. The biggest, the biggest area. They were the, they were the one considering taking down Donald Trump when he was. Yeah. They're the one trying to see Trump still, I think. Yeah. Yeah. To this day, they're still coming after him. Yeah. They're huge. Uh, And so she serves as chief judge until 86. And then she assumed senior status, which is, I think, the judge's way of saying they retired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then um, I think the next note I have is that she died of congestive heart failure uh, in September of 2005 at the Mm -hmm. age of 84. In the course of her career, she was the first black woman to be an attorney for the NAACP LDF the first to argue a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. She was the first black woman voted into the New York State Senate. She was the first Manhattan borough president, uh, black black female Manhattan borough president, and the first appointed to the federal bench. And she received over 70 awards in her career and eight honorary degrees. I I don't know. She, I can't believe I hadn't heard her name and how pivotal, how pivotal the work that she did impacted civil rights. Yeah. First only different. That's what Shonda Rhimes says. I don't always yeah. agree with Shonda, but first only different. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to be the first and the only and the different. So yeah. It is. And she just persisted and she just didn't believe that that she couldn't do it. So she just fucking did it. But that's kind of a theme, I, right? Like if a lot of the broads is that it's just like you you just kind of have to believe that you can do it. You can't believe you can't do it. At least that's when yeah. when I was here last, it was kind of that, that same feel. Absolutely. After Bowie versus the city of Columbia, 10 days after that decision fell, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. Like, like this legislation, all of these smaller, smaller slash huge cases, they all lead to the establishment of that Civil Rights Act. And you don't usually hear about the judiciary. I feel like you don't hear about the judiciary side of it. Reading all these cases, I was like, dang, like they're the ones who, who really end up making it happen in a way yeah it's state level a lot of the time that ends up being the thing that uh that's why i always say make sure you vote in your state elections and not just the national election uh too because that's the thing that changes it just like your local newspaper breaks major news before the major newspapers people forget a lot of the times when like serial killers are caught it's broken in like the Pittsburgh Gazette, <laughs> like, you know, and then it's picked up by major, major, major networks and stuff. Yeah. So it's always those yeah. small moves that create the big moves. And it, it's, that's why I think people get so, they get restless when things feel like they're moving slow or they feel like they're moving backwards. Like I know Oklahoma's, oh. 
basically abortion laws today yeah banned abortion so that they can force it to the supreme court so that they can see if they can get roe versus wade reversed um and that's why it's so important that you vote in your state elections for your best interest and that you also research and understand what your yeah. best interest is. And also are. that you vote for the judges and you research them before you vote. Exactly. Don't just check the boxes. It's easy to just like check those boxes, but not all of those people you want to be the people that are in your courts. Yeah. And trust. I've, def- I've never voted for anyone that I didn't think should be in the court, but I've definitely been stressed out when it comes to like the state judge voting. I'm like, oh crap, I got to research this better. <laughs> so Yeah. Sometimes I'll go even further though, because sometimes like there'll be there will be organizations that we align on one thing, right? Some organizations, I'm trying to be very careful of what I say right now, um, will support my my racial viewpoints. They'll be like, yeah, mm. Black Lives Matter, da, 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 da. But they won't necessarily agree with like LGBTQIA uh, support. Oh. <laughs> like, yeah. or LGBTQIA won't agree with like racial support. And so I always kind of have to be like, wait, do you, but do you, do you care about this part of it? Or do you only care about this part of it? Do you care about all racial like discrimination? Do you only care about your group? You know? Yeah. Well, and abortion is not the only topic that's being thrown around in the courts a lot. The transgender rights, yeah. and, uh, the rights of transgender children is a huge thing that all these states are trying to push laws through right now. And, uh, it's huge. Because if you allow for discrimination in one corner, you can you can use that to push discrimination in other corners as well. So if you can take rights away from women and the LGBTQIA, that also allows you to open it up to to racial discrimination as well. You know, <laughs> like it's it it's it's very precise the movements that are being made right now. Yeah. I mean I think like you know, as a as I was reading about all these cases that Connie worked on Connie my best friend Connie <laughs> um I I couldn't help but feel like this heavy sadness that like what's going on right now in the courts mm-hmm. is the opposite of what she did yeah well yeah I mean a lot of what was established during the civil rights movement not only were used to help black people they were used to help all people of color they were used to help women. They were used to help uh, the LGBTQIA community as well, because you're able to reference uh, other discriminatory cases and say, like, this is when that was not okay, and it's not okay here. You're applying the same judgment. So when Mm -hmm. you start to reverse them in a way where it looks like you're you're doing something new, it's a magic trick. Like, no, you're you're, what stood then stands now. (laughs) You just want to get rid of this thing that you've hated for 50 years, you know? Well, and I don't know. Uh, I mean, listeners, if you remember our, our toast to RGB episode, RBG episode, uh, mm. you know, one of the ways that Ruth Bader Ginsburg won a bunch of cases was by choosing plaintiffs, kind of like we already talked about, that like she won some of the, the sex discrimination cases by bringing a case for a man mm-hmm. who wasn't given uh, spousal rights. But mm-hmm. then it won spousal rights for women, mm-hmm. right? And, and like the way in these courts is trying to figure out how to get, I don't know. It's a lot of maneuvering. And so yeah. you, you have to maneuver to get the rights. And then at the same time, you have to understand that people who want those rights to be taken away are also maneuvering. And so they're figuring out yeah. how do I get rid of this thing that actually in no way harms or or, or, or changes anything about my life. I just don't want anyone else to, to have access I know, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, hmm, okay. Well, fuck you too. 
So well, yeah. now we have Katanji Brown Jackson coming, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Yes, and all we need to do is cut their terms to fifteen to twenty years only. <laughs> Get Clarence Thomas out of there. Get oh some other people gosh. out of there. I he is so problematic. Oh, I just listened to a whole story about him and his wife. And oh yeah, but yeah. let's focus today on Katanji's. Well. Judge Jackson's entrance onto the Supreme Court, which I think is very promising. Yes. Uh, donate. I would say, you know, listeners who didn't know about the LDF, it still exists. They're still mm-hmm. doing the work. So uh, if you want to contribute, you can donate to them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a great organization. The ACLU does similar work, but it's not specifically. It's American. It's a lot more. Yeah. And American civil liberties. So they're a little bit more expansive in what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, but this is important work, and these cases are what end up protecting and establishing rights for people. So pay mm-hmm. attention to them when you read news stories about them. And uh, so, what do you think? Do you like Constance? Is she was she abroad? Your yeah, you she's great. I you know I think when I was in school and learning about the civil rights, it was women outside of Rosa Parks. You didn't hear about them. Like you didn't hear about Constance. You didn't hear about any woman behind the scenes that was helping move things along, really. It was Martin Luther King. It was Malcolm X. It was Rosa Parks. It was the Black Panther group. It was uh, Magger Evers. And so it was ma- very male-focused. And so it's always nice to hear that, as always, Black women doing the work behind the scenes. <laughs> like The legacies of all these great giants of the civil rights era are, are just incredible and worth talking about every time, even though they can be really depressing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Adrian, for being here for <laughs> Constance today. Yeah, that was great. Uh, and we're going to have you back next week to talk about one of your broads. And yes, I'm bringing y'all back into modern times. Well, the 80s. <laughs> 80s to modern times. Uh, repping for a lady that I've been thinking is really cool for a while. And I just don't think people give her enough credit. Hopefully now things will start to change. I'm not even going to say her name. Uh, audience so you just have to come back and check next week yeah literally kicking ass wink wink literally <laughs> so kicking, ass. 30 kicking years. so much ass yes. it's mind-blowing <laughs> well thank you adrian always a pleasure to have of you of course thank you to learn more about constance baker motley to see pictures of her her great quotes and some video clips head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com while you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about Adrienne Snow. Her bio, photos, and links to all her cool stuff is there. Are you following Broads You Should Know on social yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. If you're a fan of this podcast, if you like us a lot, then you should spread the word about us. Share your favorite episode with your friends and family and leave us a review. That really helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed hearing about Constance Baker Motley's story, then you should check out some of the other amazing broads from the civil rights movement, including Ella Jo Baker, Coretta Scott King, Dorothy Bolden, Mary McLeod Bethune, and Polly Murray. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.